Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, hey, everybody. What's up? It's your boy, MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is James Beard, award-winning wine journalist and author, Alice Firing. Uh, Alice was proclaimed the queen of natural wines by the Financial Times, and she has written for newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, New York Magazine, Time, Afar, World of Fine Wine, and the beloved wine zine, Noble Rot. Uh, Alice is also a frequent guest on public radio. I'm struggling with that word today, guys. You know I don't edit, so it's all good. I want to say guest. Uh, Alice lives in New York and publishes the authoritative natural wine newsletter, The Firing Line. And she has recently released her sixth book entitled To Fall in Love, Drink This, A Wine Writer's Memoir. Welcome, Alice. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. You know, it's a busy time for you. The book was just released, uh, right. but um, I'm glad we, we, I'm considered legit enough media that you came on here to uh, <laughs> talk. I've been today. waiting for this moment for over a year. <laughs> That's awesome. You know who said it? Rita Jamey was fun. She was great too. She's like, I was trying, I thought I was trying to show, how can I get on the podcast? And she was an awesome guest. All my guests are awesome because the whole thing is these are people, you are people I want to sit down and have a bottle of wine with and learn more about. So thanks for being here. Um, all right, you're the queen of natural wine, so tell us what we are drinking today. Okay. Um, what we're drinking today is Bichi um, from – it's a Mexican wine. And Bichi is in t- based in Tecata, outside of Tecata, um, sort of Baja, California, nearing that, that area. And it is a blend of – old Pais, like 85-year-old Pais, mm-hmm. and what the farmer thinks is Carignan. These are old vines in gorgeous, very sandy, pinkish granitic soils with um, mountain right right in the back of it. And sometimes it's just, it's all dried farm, all organic. And what Noel will tell us, this is um, a 2021, and I should I had it this morning and I was like, oh my God, his 2021s are so beautiful. The last two vintages have been a little bit wild. Um, let's see. Let me give this a, a swig to see what it's like. Well, got a lot of red fruit. Man, it's beautiful. And um, just a little bit of funk on the nose, but that that's that good funk, you know, yeah. that, that terroir. It hasn't really landed yet. It has yeah. just landed a little bit. Needs to, but yeah. Um, but I'm excited. It's kind of crunchy, kind of carbonic-y feeling. To me, um, and um, and you know, I saw Tecate when she brought. It. I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I know Tecate the beer, <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, right? <laughs> so I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. But so let me tell you a little bit about what they do. They so they have ten acres that they farm themselves biodynamically, but then they have found other parcels of very old vines that are dry farmed in the area. Mm. And I, f- 
find that I, the climate and the terroir is so brutal. So to be in the vineyards, hear rattlers, it just flips me out a bit. And then you get a wine like this. So it is destemmed. It's not all clustered. It's okay. destemmed, uh, foot trodden gently. There may be a couple of berries there that didn't get stomped. Mm-hmm. It is fermented in cement amphora because they couldn't find an artisan around who could actually make one out of clay. So they just got the mold and poured cement. Mm. Then it goes into old barrels and stainless. Uh, the grapes were, the varieties were vinified differently. It's zero sulfur. And for me, it's just a beautiful example of a completely natural wine. With, yeah, there are some people that and there's definitely a little bit of Brettanomyces or Band-Aid-y quality on mm-hmm. the finish, smoky mm-hmm. Band-Aid, which is often a characteristic of Pais. So I don't know if it's really it's the Brett or it's mm-hmm. a little bit of the Pais. Mm-hmm. I, I just I f- just think it kind of makes a beautiful picture of a brutal environment. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I love Baja. And there's there's some – I mean, this is – I love that this is um, – I would get more new wave – for 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 uh, of a producer, um, uh, Pais, that's mission, right? Mm-hmm. We know it as mission. Yep, mm-hmm. um, love that it's old vines, um, and uh, you know Val de Guadalupe is kind of like the Napa Valley of Mexico, exactly. but they have a lot of old vines. I know they have some old petites. Well, they have some really good old vines in Mexico, right. and this is uh, you know, this is, this is always going to be. I knew this was going to be good because, you know. Uh, I'm going to get into, I don't know what, I don't understand natural wine. And I'm glad I'm here with you to help explain it to me. <laughs> so, um, I'm excited, as I said. So I like to start at the beginning. So, uh, where are you from? I'm from Brooklyn. Okay. Wow. Born in Brooklyn. And then wow. I say sheepishly raised on Long Island. <laughs> uh, so when I was ripped out of Flatbush and brought to Baldwin, Long Island, where nobody should live. <laughs> It's okay. I'm from Jersey and I, and, and I understand there's some places you shouldn't live in and I get it. I, I totally get it. <laughs> or know. be brought up. Yeah. It. Yeah. Um, it was I, like <laughs> a cultural desert. um, so uh, I love it. You're from Brooklyn and, um, you said ripped out of, out of Flatbush. Right. So what was it like growing up on Long Island back in the day? You know, it's really funny that I can't remember much other than escaping into New York. Wow. So um, I had a lot of – I went to yeshiva, so okay. an orthodox yeshiva. So I not I did not actually go to school in my neighborhood except for kindergarten. Okay. So I can remember being a tiny little girl and, and wandering when – just wandering and having neighbors come and bring, my, bring me back to my mother and walking to school. But because I was on a bus mm-hmm. for most of my life mm-hmm. going to and from school – my life was really going to Brooklyn to see relatives and going to the dentist in New York and going to my father's office in New York and going to my aunt and uncle's jewelry business in New York. So I remember New York more than Long Island. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Which is where you had to go because there was nothing to do on Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> At least on the South Shore. <laughs> so did you um, did you go to university in New York or did you go away to university? Uh, Okay, more sad <laughs> stories. This took about a sentence in my memoir. Uh, I totally messed up my call it for a lot of reasons. Bad divorce in the family, bad student. Uh, went to Nassau community for the first year that a friend's okay. mother 
just got me in. And then I got myself out of there as fast as possible to the nearest destination, which unfortunately was Stony Brook. So I stayed on Long Island. Okay. So you went to Stony Brook. Totally wrong place for me, but you know, there you go. And um, did you major in English or did you major in journalism? Um, what was your? I was I was interdisciplinary, so basically okay. it was like, okay, I got to graduate. What am I? <laughs> how many credits do I have in this? So I graduated with an interdisciplinary degree in literature, dance, and music. Okay, I like it. And did you dance? I mean, did, I did. Uh, did you dance professionally or just with a trooper or just? Never professionally. What type? I semi professional. What type did you Was it modern? Was it a. Uh... I started out as a little ballerina and then okay. I didn't grow very tall and my tits got too big. <laughs> so that's kind of like not happening for a ballerina, right? So then, <laughs> then I went to modern where they accepted these things and I did gram technique. Okay. And I did a lot of performance in, in college. And um, then afterwards, I did something called Morris Dancing on the Street, but that's a whole different story. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so that's different. Um, well, you know, I think there's a lot of overlap with music and wine, and so dance and fluidity. We'll get into that, but I, I can I can see how those disciplines kind of do come together. Um, so you're growing up on Long Island. You're oh, yeah. feeling trapped. Um, Orthodox family, you said? Mm, at least, at least the mother's side. <laughs> My father was profligate. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he was a, was a famous, uh, agnostic who loved to torture my mother by eating, going out for his bacon on Yum Kipper breakfast. Oh my God. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, besides your Sorry, dad, just, No, okay. I, this is, this, these are the stories. Like, like I, I want people, like, they've, I never knew that about house. That's why we're here. <laughs> um, so, was there wine on the table? Was, was, I mean, was it, was, was, I mean, there's traditional food you ate, right? Like, yeah, there was traditional food, um, at least up until the time that I became a vegetarian. Okay. But, or at least a pescatarian, but it was a vegetarian first. And, uh, but wine, absolutely not. It was Manischewitz and, you know, like crappy kosher wine all the way. Uh, none. None. I remember there was a Hurricane Donna. It was where there were boats. It was a really bad hurricane and the, the cellar was flooded. My father brought up probably a case of, he called it champagne. I vividly remember the taste. He said, well, let's open one. And it was, I always thought because of that, and I think it was like um, five or six at the time, that I always thought that champagne tasted like salty peanuts. <laughs> and so I was convinced for years, for decades, that I didn't like champagne. And it was probably some garbage from upstate New York. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's funny because I was actually listening to a, a book this morning. I listen to books when I work out. It's like hands-free. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And um, it was actually a marketing book. He's talking about how we live our lives is we have an experience and we create a story around it. So you had this sparkling wine. Mm-hmm. You're like five years old. And you're like, I don't, you're an adult. You're like, I don't want I've already to. decided. No, you've already decided. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like you were living your whole life for a long time. I, I think that I was. When I I went to graduate school in in Boston and I studied dance therapy, but so that's but that's also where I started, you know, getting into wine, and I was in a tasting group, and I think that is finally. So I'm really in my mid twenties before I changed my notion about champagne. Can yeah. you imagine? Um, yeah, I mean, it happens to people 
with all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, I understand the psychology of it. So, so that was, I was like, the next question was, how do you get into wine? And so you went up to, you were in grad school in Boston. Mm-hmm. So I didn't answer him. Mm-hmm. And did you mention tasting groups? So how did, how did you get into wine? By chance. Well, I was already interested in wine. I started, you know, back in those days, you could get Rieslings for two bucks. I mean, it was like, um, actually, I was just listening to Victor Schwartz's um, episode, and he was talking about how cheap wine was back in those days. So, you know, and I was also exploring whatever I could find. But as chance had it, I mentioned Morris dancing. So a fellow Morris dancer, my friend Peter, had a wine collection. And I had a roommate who had a wine collection, and she wanted to get into the wine business. And so my apartment, lucky for me, became the place for bi-weekly wine tastings. I love it. So this was going on informally all through graduate school. So for two years, Natalie moved out, and then I kept the tradition going until I left eight years later. So that's what happens. When I left Boston, I started writing again when I was doing my master's thesis because I had stopped because... I believed a professor told me who basically like ripped me apart and I like stopped. I started writing during my master's thesis and never stopped. And at a certain point, like eight years in, I started writing very seriously to the point where I had to shit or get off the pot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just felt I needed to live my life as a writer and I couldn't do it up in Boston. I could not see writing there. I just couldn't. I had to get back to New York. I, I needed the grit. I mean, it's so funny. I mean, Boston is is a major city. It's so. I mean, cities are so different, right? Like, yeah. I lived in Philadelphia, and I remember living in Philadelphia. I was like, I had to get back to New York. Funny. Yeah, I was like, this is not. And I, I don't know if it, maybe it's the blue collaredness of both those cities, or something. I don't know. Yeah. There's something that's that New York has that that those cities don't have. Yeah, it was a a properness to it, the blue collar thing. And also, I, which Boston has that, well, Philadelphia has its share of university, is that there's a constant flux of people who will never be more than 18 to 22. Right, right. And there's a certain stasis that happens because of it. Yeah, yeah you make a good point. I mean, people go to Harvard and they don't stay in Boston, right? Like, you know, or yeah. BU or like, very. I mean, like, and... Same people go to Temple or UPenn, and very mm-hmm. few people mm-hmm. hang around. Yeah. They all come to New York. They're like, trying to get jobs in New York. Great. <laughs> um, Great. So you, when you left Boston, you were writing. Were, were you writing about wine? What were you writing about at that time? I was writing essays. Okay. I was writing essays. I was writing fiction. Okay. And um, and I was, you know, I wanted to write fiction. So I, I really didn't write about wine until I landed in New York. And I knew that I couldn't get some, I've never, I've never had a service job. I've never worked in restaurants, which is crazy, but I just didn't think that I could be a bartender, let's say, and call myself a writer. I needed to go into journalism while my other stuff was cooking. Mm-hmm. It's cooking for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> but you make a good point. Um, you make a good point. And it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning with stories. And like, when you say you're a writer, then you go, you go, you, you're a writer, you know? Yeah. Um, and I love that you, you, that was, uh, like a preset in your mind. You're like, I, you know, we talk about people 
actors like they're like yeah well you're, you're a waiter like are you in service are you and it's tough i know people have to make a living but um that is a very powerful thing that you were like i i'm not a writer if i'm tending bar right i just i couldn't or until i had that first novel published yeah so you know it's it's just the way that i did it and i i needed to i needed the validation of seeing my name in print it's you know the it never gets old. It's like my sixth book. It doesn't get old. Yeah. You know, you, another book deal. You get it got done. And then you go out on the road and people like are excited to see you. Yeah, like, like it, it's, it, you're having a, not an effect. You're having an affect, affect on people, mm-hmm. which is really, really cool. And writing is so solitary that, and if you're in a different, if you're in a different art, you get immediate validation. And here it really is delayed. And so you think, oh, my God, you read me. It's amazing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you for reading me. No, thank you for writing. No, no, no. Thank you for reading me. I When people say they love the podcast, I say, I, well, thank you for taking 90 minutes to two hours out of your week to listen to me mm-hmm. goof off and talk and drink wine. I appreciate that. Um, it does mean a lot when people uh, people pay it attention. Does. You know, it definitely does. Um, so you're writing essays. Were these um, on various, or did you s- slide right into wine, or were you writing? I read somewhere that they were humorous, and you know, and and uh, yeah, um, my first pieces were just essays about life. Um, okay. And when I came here, I started pitching wine wine stories because it was something that I felt. Like most people who first start writing about wine think they know about. And I thought, I've been tasting for 10 years. I I could write about this. But in retrospect, (laughs) you know, you owe, you know, in retrospect, I just, um, I kind of cringe that I was pitching stories before I've ever really set foot in vineyards. Mm. So in some, a lot of ways, I didn't, really feel like a wine writer until I started spending a lot of time in vineyards, which is like the late 90s. And I was writing about wine for 10 years before that really happened. Mm. Very interesting theme. You're like, you were writing for 10 years and you're like, oh, I didn't really feel like a wine writer until I stepped into a vineyard. And this is this is uh, my shade. But then we have people who get a piece of paper that, that they know they were tested on six wines. Right. <laughs> And now they're a wine educator. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Like, we're talking like studying wines for two months. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, I got a little certificate. But, you know, I I was always very good at picking wine somebody would like, at sussing out somebody, I, finding a worthy wine to write about, which, which I was doing. And right now, I just, yes, I think that is necessary and people need to find their people to lead them to, but it's just, uh, it's, it's not doing wine service to do that. I don't think so either. As I, I mean, I, I just, I don't think so. I think I agree with you. I think that, um, it, it's commoditizing things. And I used to work in education and education is a commodity nowadays. I mean, it's right, a product. Exactly. I mean, that's why. You know, if you're driving down New Jersey Turnpike, like, like Maine, it's like, go to Maine for Rutgers tuition. Like, it's competitive. It's a business. 
and I and they all appreciate this too. Talking about putting your work, like I just read in the New York Times yesterday, a professor at NYU got fired. The organic chemistry because it right. was too hard. It was too hard. What world do we live in where where kids can sign a petition, and the professor gets fired? I don't get it. And and so like you know I I see that a little bit in wine. Like I don't have any certificates, but I've been drinking wine for years, and I've been fortunate. And I've tasted a lot of good wines. And I, same thing with you. I've worked retail. I mean, I but I worked retail, and I was always good at pairing people with wines. And so I, and and and. I went to law school, so I'm pretty good at research. Like a writer's good at research. So mm-hmm. I find one, I just find like something will catch my eye and then I'll go down a rabbit hole and I'm like, wow, look at that wine, you know? So, um, you know, but as a writer, you do good research. Writers do great, incredible research. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of it, I think, um, you have a body of knowledge that, that people with even advanced certificates don't have just because, we study for the test in America. We don't, you know, once you get test involved, you can be studying for the test instead of for the sake of learning. Which may be one reason I was miserable at testing. <laughs> I always like, but, but, you know, and it was like, forget about the but, just answer the question. <laughs> but it could be this way. I'm like, that's, that's miserable. So you start, <laughs> so you've, re- you've written for like a lot of, you've written pieces for a lot of magazines and, mm-hmm. and, uh, where did you ever at any point, um, did anyone ever offer you a full time job or was it, or is this a conscious choice to be the independent? Oh, God, writer? no. Okay. Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, along the way, there have been certain contracts. Mm-hmm. And every time you get one, you think, oh, my God, I've made it. So my first one was with Interiors Magazine because I wrote about design. Then I had a contract with Cooking Light Magazine. That was great. Was that it? And Time Magazine. Uh, and that was it. And I think by the time that I had a name, I was considered too controversial to be given a job, <laughs> uh, which I would have loved. I mean, the idea of, of having a platform besides me instead of always having to build my own platform mm-hmm. would be, my God, it would be amazing. So if anybody out there wants to give me a job, just go ahead. I, I get some of the same things. I'm like, how come people don't offer me a job? They're like, you do such good work. I'm like, yeah, man. <laughs> I could do this for you. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> there is that, there is that, the catch 22 of independence in, in, in writing or journalism. There, that is, uh, right. As you, uh, that you know, that you've lived for a few years here now. <laughs> yes. 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 It's funny is my independence is something that the French have always really, appreciate it uh, and actually brought up about you know my my liberty to write what I want to write and how they admire that and I was thinking <laughs> a little stability wouldn't be so I know <laughs> you don't even know <laughs> I know that's awesome <laughs> so you're on this journey and you, uh, um, and you're you've been writing about wine you finally start tasting visiting vineyards mm-hmm. Um, what did you notice or feel the first time you actually visited a vineyard? Let me think about this. The first time that I was actually in a vineyard was 1990. Um, it was Long Island. And it was winter. And I don't think I was that... 
I was so nervous about the job that I had to do that I don't think I took it, really took notice. Um, but the first time that I remember being really struck by it was probably in the Loire Valley and just the Loire Valley or, or Beaujolais and just looking and also in winter and just thinking that these vines looked like just praying creatures mm. and just being very taken by each one had an individualistic soul, very different from going to miles and miles and miles of vineyard in Napa and when you see, but when you see old and gnarled vines, they're just so like fascinating old people that you have to know. And then it was gradual. It was gradual. Every once in a while, there's one that just takes you over and you just like, Oh my God, this is, this is a spiritual vineyard. And you just realize that vineyards have personalities and expressions and they're important places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> they are. And I remember the first time I saw like an old Zempendel vine in Sonoma mm-hmm. and you're just like, Oh my God. They're incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was also, it was, it was winter. Yeah. And it was just, it's just, it's, you're just like, I don't even have the words. It, it, it's like you said, it's incredible. Right. It's like, um, so I get it. Um, so you covering wines from around the world. When did this, um, <clears throat> how'd you become the queen of natural wine? So I, I you know, Thank I've you, had, Jancis. yeah, the I mean, queen I, herself, the yes, queen calls a queen. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> how did I, well, I, I was writing about natural wine before anybody else. What year was, what year did you start writing about natural wine? 2000. Right. Because I've had, had Lee Campbell on and I think she kind of, like, I think you kind of put people onto them, like, People started catch, taking notes in like oh three oh four, but you started in two thousand. What, what what was your first experience? What was it like a lightning bolt? Was it was it was it like you got sulfite headaches? What what had you seek these out? Like oh, what? How did it come about? Well, it was I was writing the food and wine um, guide in two thousand. Okay, and that was actually my first book. I don't count it in my six. And I was tasting so many wines that I just felt the wine world was becoming bereft and there was, they were all tasting the same no matter what grape and they were all powerful and they all tasted disgusting and there was no Barbera anymore. There was no, no Biola anymore. There's no California wines that I could drink anymore. Like what the hell was happening? And it was getting very difficult to to find enough wines for the book. I think that's why they didn't have me back for the second time. So I discovered the wines from Turn Around, like Joe Dresner. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the problem was the world was in love with New Oak. And then lo and behold, I found out there was a whole world of technology behind it. And the wines that I was liking when I, you know, did my research were wines that were from organic viticulture that were made with native yeast and were, had no additive other than grape, no added tannin, no enzymes, and had low to no, well, actually back then, zero sulfur was very rare. Yeah. So moderate, low use of sulfur. 
So I thought, well, this is very interesting. And I wrote a story in the New York Times, for better or for worse, winemakers go high tech. And I was still figuring it out. Mm-hmm. I was still, it was actually a third person piece. It was a journalistic piece. It was not an opinion piece. And after that, where I think I actually got death threats from California because of it, because I was outing all of the technology. Mm-hmm. After that is really when I started spending time in the vineyards, like intensely, and discovering the natural wine fairs of France. So I went to Le Dive Boutet for the first time in 2002. And the very few Americans, very few anybody else other than French there at the time. So that's how. And that was really all... As a journalist, it was an amazing world to report on, and but there were no places that you could write about it for <laughs> <laughs> because they didn't want to hear it. So yeah. I started to blog. <laughs> Those big publications don't want to. They don't mess around with it. Back <clears throat> Why? Because 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 they can't advertise. Yeah, yeah. Because they would lose advertising. Yes. So yeah. back back then it was an issue. Now people are getting their money from different areas. It's not an issue anymore. Yeah. Um, so for I have people who I have MWs who listen to this, and I have people who for some reason find me and somehow tell me they learn about wine on this podcast. So um, <clears throat> let's go a little Great. bit deeper okay. on <clears throat> excuse me the uh, technology piece mm-hmm. because I think um, that's that's a point where I I kind of understand the natural wine thing. So um, when you said they were into technology, are you referring to things like oak chips and and Mega purple and like on or what what, what or or you, or you even going as far as like because it is manipulating micro oxygenation which exactly. which which you know actually you top. just had a wine in the summer that I don't know whether Michael Havens still does but Michael Havens was in the story that I wrote he was very unhappy with it because he was very in favor of using micro ox mm-hmm. so um, that wine actually held up well that wine was amazing what vintage was it. Oh, it was like something from the eighties. That he wasn't using micro ox back then. Yeah, or early nineties. Early, it was. It was, it was old. Yeah, it, it was old. I'd I'd love to do pre, because it was anyway. So yes, things like micro ox, which is used to soften tannins. Now, it's yeah, that that for me is problematic because tannins are really important for the aging process and for the protection of the wine. But so I I used. In um, the battle for wine and love, I think I called it, or maybe it was a naked wine, you know, robbing a wine of its old age. Mm. So uh, there's reverse osmosis, concentrator machines, and all the variants. There is uh, added tannins, a lot of enzymes. Uh, there is, I haven't gone through, I mean, of course, designer yeasts. There are hundreds of yeasts that can manipulate the aromas and the flavors of the wines. There's, you know, all sorts of things that you can do, some are quite toxic to prevent Brettanomyces. Uh, that kind of thing. There are about 72, if you add them up, it could be, depending on how you count, 72 to 100, whatever. But a lot of the machines. Uh, there's a, there's this kind of weird washing machine for the grapes that can, that's like some people just put their grapes through a washing machine. I'm like, why? So wow. like, it's just really, do you need this kind of technology? And because of course, if you're washing, then that means that you have to yeast, that kind of thing. 
So yeah, it's entitled like uh, it's like let the grapes do what they're supposed. Right. Yeah, and talking about like enzymes. So what do they use for us to really break down the wines? I mean, the grapes so they ferment better. There's also then you can go into extreme temperature control. Uh, there is even high tech devices to make a natural wine. I'm gonna say that in quotes to uh, strip the sulfur out or the sulfides out. Uh, there's also um, uh, dialysis, spinning cone. Oh yeah, like, no. Yeah. Well, I yeah, I know people spin sometimes to lower the alcohol. alcohol. Um, right. But I also I didn't realize yeah, and I said that too because you see there's wines say zero sulfite, so like I'm like, but then, but because it's in a supermarket, I know it's been processed exactly. So so I'm like, yeah, I don't know if you're better off with that one, bro. Exactly, and <laughs> I, I think hydrogen peroxide is is basically the the hot ticket to remove your sulfites. Yeah. So no, it wasn't about health or anything. It just thought it was taste. It yeah. was just taste. And then, of course, drinking that way aligns with the way I eat and my food philosophy. So it makes sense. So, yeah, um, <clears throat> saw this great clip of Anthony Bourdain. He said he hates to turn farm to table because, you know, everything, you know, but, but yeah, there, I mean, when I hear that, when I hear, I, somebody said they were like the first farm to table race when I was like, that's not even possible. Right. I was like, that's not even possible. Like, like literally, I just, I know people like, like even Kevin's really when he's working upstate, like they, they got their food from a farm and just cooked it. I mean, right. uh, oh, Chez Panisse, like, like literally it was, it was like, it was like, it was in the nineties. Like we're the first ever farm. I was like, no, you're not. Right. Stop it. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so you said when you went to that first like fair, um, Natural wine fair in France. You're like, you were like, there's only a handful of Americans there. Well, if any, um, besides yourself, I went with Joe Dresner. Okay, and Joe brought people. Okay, and I was not traveling with him, though I hooked up with them for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And there was Jenny Lefcourt, who was then living in France, and she was the only other American. So you go today to Ladiv, that has become a huge show. And it's, it's international. Like people are there from all over the world. It's crawling with American importers. So it was, you really had the, I really had the sense that this was something that hardly anybody knew about. There were, then there were maybe 20 people, 20 people showing their wines, 20 wineries. Today they're like 150 or something. That kind of thing. <clears throat> so what is, your your elevator pitch. What's your definition of a natural wine? Okay. I actually, so I have been doing my homework, so I watched <laughs> Pascaline's fabulous one. And she gave you a very, very detailed idea yes. of what. But I simplify it and I say organic viticulture or some sort of organic viticulture, nothing added, nothing taking away, except if needed, some low amount of sulfites. Simple for me. I like that. <clears throat> but I also like that you stated organic uh, viticulture too because that's where I get confused because there is no – I mean, <clears throat> you know, I, the world does need some gatekeepers. There's no yeah. real – there's no natural wine board, right? Like you have to – you can get Demeter certified. There's certifications right. for certain practices, sustainable farmers. But like you could – 
people could touch on a lot of the things that you say, but the grapes might not be organic, but they just, they, they just use natural yeast. So like, this is natural. Don't, you know, right. so I, I think. Yeah. The, the buying grapes thing is it's the, it's very dicey unless you, you know, I know people who only buy from people they know. Mm-hmm. And then in California, it's kind of difficult to buy from people that you know or have any impact on the farming. So it's really difficult in places like California that have huge vineyards that are very corporate. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> there's money to be made. Somebody's going to make that right, exactly, exactly. money. Um, <clears throat> um, you know what? I love that definition. It's a great time to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Alice firing in just a second, guys. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. Um, yes, California. It's actually interesting. I, I had in the studio the week before. I had um, Sam Katori, who's Phil Katori's son, and yeah. you know, and Phil Katori is the godfather of organic mountain farming. Mm-hmm. Um, but he works for a lot of big companies because that's who can afford right. to pay. But, but it is good fruit. Um, and, um, you know, uh, it, 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 it's, like you said, it's tougher to do it. California is a tough place to make wine if you're a young winemaker and you don't yeah. have a lot of money. Yep. Uh, just, it's just, nearly impossible. It's just, I mean, and I love California wines. It's the only wine could have lived in, but that, that is the reality. Like it, yeah. it, you know, that's, and there are, um, Okay, so I'm sure you've seen it. You're probably in it. That natural wine movie. Are you? I'm in not it? in it. You're not in it. How you're not in it? <laughs> what the it. hell? Who cast that I movie? Really <laughs> and I've been trying to see it. I haven't seen it yet. Well, I had, I, you know, I did an IG live with this young woman. Uh, she makes, it's called Margins Wine. Yes. And, um, and she saw a post on, on, you know, someone had posted something and I said, mm, natural wine. I don't know. And so she reached out. I was like, nah, you got to try my wine. So she sent me her wines. Her wines She's were, great. they were good. Yeah, they're good. They were good. But she, but she was very, forthcoming like like another winemaker and he's not he's not a corporate dude but he, he just you know he's been at it for like 30 years so he's like you know does she do anything with Amphor? She's like i can't fucking afford him for like like, like <laughs> you know um and she's doing and and i think and and you know um she's not doing well, I'd, I'd love to hear your, on the hybrid grapes we have in this area. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, she is using more. I mean, she does a Grenache. She does a Chenin Blanc. She's doing typical varietals. But there are these crazy old neglected vineyards that have been brought back to life off right. the side of the road somewhere. All yeah. the wines were under. I think the, the most was like 12.5. But, it, it, you know, it, right. it, it, but whatever she did, for me, I don't care about the alcohol per se as long as it fits my flavor profile. As long as you get, you get that ripeness in the fruit for me, mm-hmm. if it's 12 or if it's 15, five, you know, things have to line up. But she was, I mean, I was really blown away. They were really nice wines. She's had some, Megan, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's had some wines, I think that are 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that are really, she's got a beautiful touch. Yeah. She really does. Very deft. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I think the only chance for young or new whatever age winemakers is try to get fruit that nobody else wants mm-hmm. because it's a variety that nobody else wants. And there's a lot of that in California because California still, you know, wants like the top, the top dog varieties. Yeah. But so, 
But let's talk about hybrids. I'm happy to talk about hybrids. <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, before you talk, yeah, yeah talk about hybrids because you, you you actually said uh, it was probably some bad sparkling from upstate New York, but now there's a resurgence up uh, or there. Yeah, I mean because the oldest wine in America is actually up there. I didn't, couldn't believe that uh, mm. was a. Uh, it was a. It's related to a religion, something brothers. But anyway, yeah, it's Christian brothers. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about hybrid grapes because. Um, uh, you know, when Yannick came on, he brought s- something from Vermont, you know. Oh, good. I'm glad I didn't bring anything from Vermont. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but, yeah, uh, let's – hybrid grapes. Okay. Because uh, they seem to be um, – seem to be – this is my perception that a darling of some of the natural wine crowd because they're more affordable. Oh, hardly affordable. Really? Yeah. Um, there are some people – well, affordable – it's interesting. When Deirdre Heacon started, they were expensive. She's never raised her prices. So now as everybody else is going up, they seem more reasonable. And she was making a point, hey, look at Vermont. Uh, Vermont and um, in, in To Fall in Love Drink This, I have a chapter about Vermont because it's basically a state that did it right. And they have a lot to thank for Deidrehekin, which is basically hybrids are what grows here. If you're growing, it's a fool's project to grow vinifera. And if you treat the hybrids to really good viticulture, she grows, but actually you cannot make, you cannot hope to make a world class wine in Vermont or at least an important wine or get it out of the state if it's not organic and it's not natural, mm. which is remarkable because there's no other state in this country that could actually have that claim or really anywhere else in the world. But at this point with all the wonderful farming, these grapes are really having a lot to say. So it wasn't so much that the hybrids were bad, but they were being disrespected. The treatment, yeah. the treatment was bad. So right now they're really I just – it's a local wine done right. They're not styling their wine on a different um, – like they're not trying to make Bordeaux. They're not trying to make Napa Cabernet. They're not trying to be Burgundy, which, of course, everybody who starts out wants to imitate. No, we want to find out what Vermont is. And that is what Vermont does, right? And it happens that their instrument of expression is something that can grow there, which are hybrid grapes. And there are some fabulous ones. I love Marquette, and that's a relatively new one. La Crescent is beautiful. Um, there's a lot of them do have an origin from Muscat, so a lot of them are very aromatic. Mm-hmm. But little skin contact that goes down. And they're just, but there are some that are coming out like that are more affordable. Aapidus is more affordable, and also Ellison Estate. That those hit at under thirty. Well, one thing I would definitely have to agree with you: if if wine is about terroir, if it's about a sense of place, mm-hmm. it does it would make more sense to grow grapes that are native right. to where they're from instead right. or of at uh, least you can grow without major intervention. Yeah. So uh, Deirdre's story was really, I think I always get this mixed up, whether it was 2011 or 2012, Hurricane Virginia, I think it was was Virginia, I can't remember. Um, She was still, she had one little vineyard up where she lives, but she was buying her other grapes and keeping a sharp eye on, on um, on the farming, and it was a very, very wet year. And their farmer, her farmer said, I got a spray, I got a spray. 
And she said, don't spray and I will buy everything. Mm. Just don't spray. And after that, she took the vineyard. She was able to rent the vineyard and did her own farming after that. And th- the grapes were beautiful. The grapes were fine. That's you know, awesome. It was just, it was a good lesson. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's talk about your controversial, if you will, 2008 debut. Yes. The Battle for Wine and Love or How I Saved the World from Parkerization. Right. I did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's talk about it. Yeah, so um, it's 2008, <clears throat> uh-huh. uh, and we're talking. I we're assume just for people because there might be people we're talking about Robert Parker Jr., mm-hmm. who was who was the penultimate wine critic for decades, and and for better or for worse, uh, you mentioned like um, shaped a whole generation of winemakers. Mm-hmm. Um, who, so funny, we we're talking about approval before, but like who sought his approval because it, 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 it meant more, you could charge more for your wine. And so, like you said, um, wines were just all began tasting the same because they were, they were just a flavor profile that he liked mm-hmm. and people were creating, you know, I mean, that was the era of big Pinot Noir. Everything was big, 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 was big, big, big extracted. <clears throat> um, and, and I don't think Alice liked that. Alice didn't like it. <laughs> so, did you start writing the book, or did you pitch someone on the book first? How did like, like was it brewing for years? You're like, fuck it, I I got to do something. You put your foot down, like. Well, no, it wasn't. Um, what was brewing for years is that I needed to write a book, and I couldn't figure out. Okay. And I was going to write. I found it recently, like in 2002, a natural wine guide, hmm. you know, which couldn't get a publisher for. And I forgot what the original book was going to be, but it was a little bit about the changing face of the wine world. And I remember looking for an agent and she rejected me and said, basically, this isn't, this isn't the wine you want to drink. I mean, this isn't the book you want to want to write, you know, and, and, I got really angry at myself and it was like, yes, it is the book that I want to write, but I didn't do a really good job of convincing you. And at that point, I hadn't had the nerve to write it in first person. Mm, okay. And at that point, I just felt that you, my academic career was this. I was the kid in the back of the class who was always afraid to raise her hand. For one, the answer seemed so obvious it had to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And for a few years in wine events, I felt like that kid. Like, isn't everybody else noticing? And then other people are saying, this isn't terroir. This isn't terroir. Like, why did you change? You ha- had decades of making gorgeous wines. Why are you making wine now that looks like an Napa Cabernet? But it didn't show up in the Wine Spectator, even though Tom Matthews was very upset about it. So he is no longer the head of um, Wine Spectator, but at one point he and I viewed the world similarly. So I finally said, it's enough of being quiet. You know, I'd like everybody else. Obviously, I'm not the only one who feels this way, and I'm going to write a book about it. But at that point, when I got rejected, I had the um, – I was empowered to try to have my own voice. 
And the only way I felt that I could tell the story is how Robert Parker's popularity among winemakers was robbing me and other people who drank the way I did of the wines that we loved. And it felt like a mass, ex- mass extinction. Mm. And so I, with all due respect to Bob, um, the reason that I use Parkerization is because he had become bigger than himself and he be, had become, you know, a, a brand. Um, which I meant to depersonalize it from Robert Parker. So that's why I use Parkerization because wine had become Parkerist. You know, I'm not the first person who had said it. So that is what happened. And then, um, when I got the title, I knew I would sell it. Some things are like that. I got the title, knew I'd sell yep. it. And it did. Yeah. That's what, and you know, some people were not happy with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like what was some of the, uh, <clears throat> Some of the, 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 the feedback you received. Well, people in California were furious so much that I felt really unwelcome, um, and afraid to go. Oh, when I did events, people, some people in the audience were really brutal. And it's, it, it really was interesting. There was, there was one in, in Healdsburg that I, Actually, I wrote about it in, in Naked Wine. Somebody who had a Pinot blog or something just got up and was lambasting me, cutting me to shreds. And then another woman whose father owned vineyards got up and just argued the other point about how the way that they needed to grow grapes were killing the vines now and how bad it was for viticulture and how she longed for the day of making just honest ones. And so it was really pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, when I wrote it, like, I was nobody. I had a blog. I wrote a book. I didn't think anybody would notice. That's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but like, you said, it, like, so much is in the title. Like, people, like, um, you do that book. I mean, people are going to buy it just, some people bought it just to shoot it down, I'm sure. Right. You know? Right. Um, <clears throat> And I like what you said because I was like, did you have an actual problem with him? But no, it's just kind of what happened. You think it, and it, I don't know him, but I, I don't think he set out to be that he was going to change wine per se. But like you said, the winemakers, it was, it was the producers. Yeah. But I, I will say that I, Bob did have a, a willful ignorance about it. He didn't start out liking those wines and actually he liked Rhone's. And I don't understand how he didn't notice the change in Chateauneuf. To where I used to love Chateauneuf, but there's maybe two or three Chateauneufs that I can drink now. And I could say the same thing. And at one point, it wasn't all Grenache. Grenache is powerful. And there were 13 plus grapes that would go into an old fashioned Chateauneuf. They were beautiful. And all of a sudden, everybody, you know, forced, like left their concrete tanks behind and their old wooden barrels and went to small new oak with high toast how could he not notice anyway so yeah i do have a little he was but but i know he said he wouldn't read the book and he called it some name but yet people who wrote for him really liked the book (laughs) 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 and tried to get him to read it they said he'd actually like it if he'd read it but you know never yeah i mean i love ganache 
I haven't had the opportunity to have some of the older stuff. So I only know a lot of that big stuff. And yeah, I mean, and. Try to find um, Domain de Villeneuve. It's very old fashioned. Okay. It gives you an idea of what the old fashioned Chateauneuf was like. It's still a very beautiful wine. Yeah. Um, so that book comes out. Um, and you like said, you said, I just had a blog. No one knew about you, but then people knew about you after that. Yeah. And people didn't know about the blog. I mean, I was an early blogger. And- yeah. I mean, that's where I think, yeah. I mean, obviously, if you were blogging wine tracks, we're all wine geeks. So they're going to, you're going to get right. found if you're doing some, right. like, and- like, like writing a blog back in the day. And it was nominated for James Beard, which was shocking. That's awesome. Um, that was crazy. <laughs> Wouldn't happen again. <laughs> Never say never. <laughs> All right. So, what was your next book? What was your book after? Uh, Naked Wine, Letting Grapes Do uh, Do What Comes Naturally. Never liked that second, but uh, that was that came out in 2011, and mm-hmm. I pitched it in t- 2009 when I realized that the natural wine thing was happening, and at some point, people were going to try to make fake natural wine or try to like mm-hmm. you know like squirrel. Oh, around it. So I wanted there to be a basis for where it came from, who are the players, and what was the objective to try to give some basic history for it. So that was that. But it was based on my attempt to make a natural wine in California in a place that was hostile to natural wine. (laughs) So that was also, I mean, those first two were also narrative nonfiction. Okay. Then came For the Love of Wine, I have a lot of love in my titles. I, 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 I know. <laughs> uh, my Odyssey Through the World's Most Ancient Wine Culture, which was my love poem to the country of Georgia. And Where, when did you first go to Georgia? Because I had Lisa Granick on, and she's also a, yeah, yeah um, 2011. Okay. And how did that, how and why did that come about? I My first Georgian wine is 2008, and I was very intrigued. I had another one. Also intrigued, but I realized there were problems going on in Georgia. Then I got invited to um, the first international Quivery conference, and how could I not go <laughs> to something with such a charming title? <laughs> so that's and I fell in love with it from the from before I landed. I was just completely head over heels in love with the place, the country, the food, what um, their tradition in the unbroken tradition of making wine in Quivery. And I'm also very, um, I'm fascinated by post-Soviet winemaking cultures. Mm. And so their attempt to come back to their original winemaking culture. Right, because they, they their wine was all used to make sweet wine or something like that. Well, no, that, well, that was one of their most popular ones okay. um, from Racha. Uh, but they also made sparkling wine. Okay. Which was from the area Stalin was from in Gori. And they also made very, very strong Kakheti and uh, Saparavi and Ricazzatelli. And those were never sweet. Okay. Those are always dry. And, uh, but they were, when I got there in 2011, there were only five people making natural wine commercially. Mm. And it was my objective to give them as much attention as I possibly could so they could resist all the people looking to sell them technology. 
So that's why I wrote that book. <laughs> You're a tech blocker. <laughs> yeah, I am a tech blocker. Oh, God. oh man, somebody's going to do a really nasty t-shirt about me. I know. <laughs> Sorry. It just comes out. Of, I was just, it just comes out of my mouth sometimes. <laughs> Uh, I mean, but I'm looking at your tiles. They're 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 quite at least evocative, not provocative. Dirty guide to wine. Mm. <laughs> well, the dirty guide to wine. So I I didn't want to write about wine anymore. Okay. Um, at that point, I was I was working on a memoir about escaping a serial killer. So oh. um but when my then agent tried to shop that book around. He was told, we don't want this kind of book from Alice. We want another wine book. And I'm like, okay, but who's going to give me a good advance for a wine book? Mm -hmm. Because nobody buys fucking wine books. You know, it's like everybody wants a wine book, but nobody buys them. (laughs) So, you know, and I'm like, I'm, you know, not a dilettante here. I need to make money. And, uh, I'm not figuring I could probably get more money for a serial killer book than I can for my book. I mean, again, you, you're very ahead of the time. Look at all, look at all the streaming shows now. They're all about serial killers. It's all people want to watch is murder, right. death, kill. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so you know what you're doing, basically. But so I said, okay, I'm going to give you the geekiest wine book, and nobody. This is really it's changing, isn't it? The wine. Yes. Book? I, so you guys, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, I, I first one, I don't know anything about natural wines, but like. This is another banger. You brought a great one. Obviously, Pascaline brought one. Great one. Um, yeah. yeah. Yannick brought a great one. Yeah. Um, but it's getting like a little fruit fly coming in yep. now. It's, I mean, the, the life is coming mm-hmm. out. And with the, the more naturalness is starting to show right now, as opposed to just a pretty one with maybe the little the, the band-aid. It tastes like, yeah, it tastes, it tastes like um, – it tastes like fresh fruit, right? If you pick a strawberry, it's got like yeah. all that stuff on it or it's like a dusty raspberry. That's what it's tasting. It's tasting right. like when you just pick something right from the field and it's got that field, that kind of right. dust over it. Um, yeah. It's tasty. Yeah. You know, it's just, this, this could be, uh, this is definitely going to be one of the most interesting bottles of wine brought on the podcast. Cause people either go, they either go big, they bring like something like yeah. classic baller or they bring something like to blow my mind in a different way. And then my mind is being blown right now because okay. I'm drinking Tecate. Anyway, so I came up with this, the book that I wanted, like there are all these wine books on terroir, but they don't tell me anything about how it's affecting what's in my glass. So there are geology books of vineyards, Mm -hmm. which is great. But since I wanted to organize, and also I'm really, really, as even though I say that I'm, well, I don't want to go that about tired with wine, it bugs me that people still buy wine by grape. And this was my attempt to try to bring people back to place because I think that is really the only way you get a very satisfactory wine experience. And so to bring it back, so I divided the world into into soil types. And I was shocked when we got an offer. It was very low. And I basically was screaming at my agent on the street. I said, yeah, like, you know, you go write a book for $8,000 with this kind of research. You do it. I'm not doing it. Sorry. No, no, I, no, I, I, I I, I know, I know the reality when people like, they go, well, what's your, this formula for what you're supposed to pay for a podcast? I'm like, that's like an eighth of my cost. I don't need your dollar. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
like I'm not doing this at home on Zoom. Like, like <laughs> and then they said, "Well, you'll get it back in royalties." At that point, I'd yet to get anything, any royalty. <laughs> When I at two thousand fifteen, so. Um, but I, I want to say this. I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but I I know another woman who wrote about natural wines, and she's not writing about wine anymore. Same thing. She like she came after you, yeah. But she's like, wine has had no love for me for all my writing for it. Like like she's felt shunned by the business, hmm. um, and kind of shut out. Um, so she's writing other stuff. Um, yeah. That being said, um. Your latest book. Should we talk about your latest? Let's talk about yes, your latest book. Yes, let's talk about the latest book. Let's talk about So, yeah. Um, but after that came Natural Wine for the People. That yeah. was a wine guide that was easy, whatever. And then I, yet again, I was like going back to, it's, I was starting to go back to fiction, thinking about writing plays again. And I wrote an essay that landed in New York Magazine about drinking alone during the pandemic. And my agent said, I want a book of essays. And I said, I always wanted a book of essays. It was my first really love, but they're super hard to get published. And she said, just, just do the proposal. Just leave the rest to me. <laughs> do the proposal, please. And so the only way that really made sense was to do it as a memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have a wine component. I just, one of the things, if I have a life work, it's to try to, not only to help people drink better, um, find the wines that will add enjoyment to their life, but also to try to knit some s- that put wine into culture, to put wine into our culture. Now, obviously, wine didn- was not part of my culture, this kind of wine, but it is part of my culture now. Um, Maybe drinking was part of my culture, but the way that I wanted to do that was by building into stories, formative stories about my life that I feel people could relate to, mm-hmm. and then tie it into one. So each fifth of the 15 essays have things like starting to smell, but it's also about un- the loss of unconditional love. I mean, I want my stories about wine to be stories about life. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was doing with this book. Yeah. And um, how do you think you've done with it? Like, I mean, it's it's been out. I mean, obviously it's turned in and it's published. You've been out on the road, the feedback, or just how did you feel about it? Well, there's something very odd about this book that I will divulge here, which I haven't said in public because it's really new, is that it's it's going into second printing. Oh, wow. Now, if you look at my Amazon numbers, they kind of suck. So I don't know what's going on. Somebody is buying this book and they're not <laughs> telling me about it. Um, because it's in second printing. I never had a book go into second printing in the second month. So that's fantastic. Um, so that's showing me that it is hitting a nerve and I really did want to reach the public that is not drinking. Mm-hmm. I want my followers certainly to read this book. No to you all. Go out and buy the damn yeah. book. <laughs> it's only $17. It's a paperback. Um, but I think that I'm reaching the other person who might be going to the supermarket to buy their wine, who um, just like the sound of the title or mm-hmm. like the cover or 
um, saw a vineyard and thought it was pretty, but had no idea what it meant to them. I think that this book is reaching another audience, which is extremely gratifying. And it's also landing with, I thought, you know, it, with a lot of men, um, which my, my reader has always been mostly male, mm-hmm. oddly enough. Um, and it's, you know, it's got an Alice in Wonderland cover. So, you know. I'm yeah, I was thinking about Ty Lowry, and it's like, it's going to be Alice in Natural Wineland or something. But anyway, but yeah, the covers, it is, it alludes yeah. to that. Well, the covers alludes to it because the, the last chapter when I'm eating, you know, psilocybin. So where, so that, I mean, <laughs> so that's, that's kind of when the magic, you know, the mushroom is glowing <laughs> on the cover. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I think for a wine memoir, it's kind of surprising. There's serial killers. There's, you know, psilocybin. There's tripping. There's concentration camps. There's Nina Simone. There's a bunch of things that you're not necessarily going to get. In normal well, I memoirs. love that because I think that and I, when I started this, I didn't want to be just like we're going to talk about Venice Vifera and all that shit and clonal selection and bricks. Mm-hmm. Um, people connect to stories and and if, I think as wine wants to reach more people, it's going to be the stories. It's it, we don't need to know that Malbec is original is a blending grape in Bordeaux and it found its home in Cahors and but it yeah. really made its way in Argentina. Like that's what like no like I you know this is about like your story. People are going to relate to like oh I went to college for this and didn't know what I wanted to do. They're going to relate to these points of or I wanted to do this or. Whatever they wanted to do, and maybe it's not right, but they like they were like, "I'm going to do this," and they made a decision like you did, like not to go tin bar or work in hospitality. Right. Those are the points where I think people um, are going to connect and then want to come into wine. So, like you know, people are buying wine at the supermarket, but then they're like, "Oh, I really like what she said about X. It has nothing to do with wine." Right. And then you you know kind of invite them into your tribe, so to speak. Yeah, one of the best and early version of it. Actually, when, when the book was finished, my illustrator wrote me a note saying that she read the book in one sitting and then she went to a wine shop and she said, I'll never drink wine the same again. Well, first of all, I've never had an illustrator or a book cover designer ever read any read, of my read your books. Book. They just did their so, job. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, she read the book. <laughs> That's amazing. And then I was like, wow, what a great reaction. Like yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. So I feel I'm I'm proud of the book. I'm proud of the work. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, speaking of concentration camps, I I think when I finally decided to reach you because I read I read an article on Trink magazine mm-hmm. that you had written. It was like how natural wine made me confront my German problem. Yeah. Say more about that because obviously we know that you're of uh, Jewish heritage. Mm-hmm. So yeah, say more about that. So I was brought up in. Um, in a family that uh, just didn't buy German, you would you could not buy anything German. It was like it was like you you'd have a reaction to hearing the accent, you know. Forget about uh, you know like all basically no German product. But didn't you buy it? Like you said, you bought a German a, a VW. Then, well, no, yeah, I, my first car was a little blue bug. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I had never this is a piece that I had never read and. Um, and it's true. I was realizing that I had this very, I would drink some Rieslings, but I had had very bad experiences in Germany. 
And I just had this gut reaction against things German, which I realized filtered down to my going to Germany and also Austria. And so that story was really about my trying to understand what happened. And it did change. Of course, I had, I had been friendly with winemakers in Austria and Germany. I started to change basically because of natural wine where I visited and I basically had to get over myself. So basically that's it. I just like because of the natural wine, because of finding wine and really understanding the wine of beauty on its own. And it was really the night before Trump was elect- elected that where I was, you know, like three Austrians and a German and a Jew walk into a bar kind of thing. Yeah. And we're talking about it that I just realized I just had to swallow it and get over it because we're all people. I mean, it's as cliche as it is, but it was really just getting over this emotional reaction of nothing that had a German accent. For some reason, film was a different story. I could watch German film with no problem. Didn't bring that into the piece. The piece, which I felt was good, I felt I probably needed another 4,000 words. Mm -hmm. Well, what would you have added to it? I just need to think about it a lot more. (laughs) Um, well, uh, what I would a lot more and a lot more research is basically, it's just such a complicated problem. The loss of, the loss of history of Jews in Germany and Austria in the wine world. Mm. They were, they were not only merchants and they think they were 75% of the wine merchants. Mm before World War II. But the whole culture of Jew as winemaker and landowner is lost. Mm. And if I, it's the one book that I feel I have a cultural need to write to try to reclaim that. Yeah. That. And to, you know, put history in its right place. So that's what I would add because that I think is part of it for me. Well, you should write that book. I mean, we, there's a book about uh, wine and war and yeah and um world war ii was really gnarly um uh everywhere they they were just raiding cellars in france and ripping up vines and mm-hmm. you know i didn't really you know you think of champagne that whole that was one of the worst battles of world war ii it was just mm-hmm. covered in blood and now it's rebuilt and but like yeah i didn't think about that was one of one of hitler's gripes so they're the merchants in this and mm-hmm. so like but they were winemakers too. And well, that's that would make sense. Yeah. And, and, that, and it's lost. And I have a couple. So I need basically one person to hang a story on. Otherwise it's going to be an academic publishing and I can't afford to do that unless I could go the grant route and stuff like that. Yeah. You don't want to do that. Nah, I don't want to do no, that. this is, this is, this is, <laughs> this is like some, Hey, listen, this is, this is some Steven Spielberg type movie. <laughs> like, like, yeah, this book. Maybe we get you paid here. <laughs> yes. Get me paid. <laughs> um, <clears throat> So, um, what are you, like, what are you doing now? I just touring and support of the book. I, you just said that you like to drop a thousand words a day. Mm-hmm. So are you just, are you working on anything in particular or are you just? Uh, well, I have my newsletter. So that still, still needs to clock along, even though I'm doing other things. 
Do you charge for that? Is that yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. Like, that is my. Yeah. That is That's the way your, I make yeah. a living. Yeah, good, good. Yeah. Um, right. So yeah, it comes out three every third week. Why every third week? I don't know. That's when it comes out. It's when it comes out. <laughs> and uh, and so trying to you know reinvigorate it, put a lot of new good stuff in there. So that's some of my thousand words a day. I uh, took the old novel out of the drawer. Okay. Yeah. So I started working on that again. Maybe this time I can get it right. Uh, I always do that when I'm not exactly sure. And um, had started a new novel, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this one right first. That's what I'm doing. So we'll see. <laughs> so what do you like to drink? I mean, you drink, I mean, so uh, we all drink, right? We all drink too much. You know? We all drink too much. <laughs> um, but like, like, do you have any favorite uh, varietals? I Because I know that's like, it's kind of like, is that anti-Alice? But like, yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that said, that said, um, you know what, uh, that, that said, you know, I, if I, if you're going to nail me down. Yeah. Uh, I do super like Cabernet Franc. I do love Chenin. I love Poussard and Trousseau and Gamay. All right. And Pais. <laughs> <laughs> and the other than that, I like, I, you know, their region. So I drink a lot of Beaujolais. Um, and, what am I drinking a lot of these days? I don't know. I love Northern Rhone wines. So I do love Syrah. All right. So now we're going to play a little game. Okay. It's called FMK. Fuck, marry, or kill. Three grapes. We have Trousseau. <laughs> <laughs> we have Shannon. Oh, this you tricked me. I, mean, I did trick you. You did say you were going to trick me. <laughs> and Syrah. But not trick you like, you are the father. Like, you're <laughs> Because I had, because you, because you, you drink so off the beaten path, you know. It's not like I could peg you down, like um, I could name. Yeah. So, so I wanted I'm, this. This gets it's. You have to have a little tension, right? Because okay. like, no. you, you, like, there's one grape you don't get to drink anymore. You're killing it. One you're gonna marry. So you're gonna be a daily drinking one. Like that's my little side piece. Okay. So what? Wait. We so, had Shannon. Yeah. Trousseau. And Syrah. Oh, this is real. <clears throat> we're talking a Syrah, but let's Syrah. Really, from the northern northern realm, yeah. Uh, that's tough because there's only one white grape in there. Um, wait. So you said Trousseau Syrah? Why? Like I see, I failed the memory test. All right, fine. Um, we are going to kill Trousseau. Okay. So no more bois for you. We're going to fuck Shannon, and we're going to marry Sarah. I like it. People hate that one. <laughs> I, I did that. I, I did it with a bunch of Rhone winemakers, and I did Grenache Syrah Moved. They're like, ugh. They're like, I hate to say it, but I'm going to kill Moved. <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, it, it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be hard. You, you've nailed this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> what what is a... What is a uh, what is a James Beard Award wine writer's? First of all, what what did you win that James Beard Award for? Oh God, it's such ancient history, but you know they always trot it out. Come on, it's like, like it's like when an Academy like you like you get to keep you get yeah, to keep I, that. I won it actually um, for that New York Times story for better for better or for worse winemakers go high tech. 
Mm. And uh, so it felt for me an extremely meaningful win. I love it. I love it. And so like we've talked about, you know, you've alluded, you've not alluded, you've said there's struggles in being like this independent wine writer. Mm -hmm. um, what does your typical day look like for you? James Beard Award winning wine <laughs> journalist and writer. A typical day. Uh, there's no, t uh, my mom is, is going to be 98 in a few weeks oh, and, uh, she's needed a lot more of my attention. So my typical day is no longer my typical day gotcha. because it depends on dealing with all of the caregivers and a typical day is a lot about that. Mm. Um, I, what used to be a typical yeah, day. Yeah. What used to be? Okay. Rephrase. What used to be a typical day? Oh, a typical day used to be. Getting up on, get up early, like seven, go through emails, go through things in Europe, a little bit of research and wine news, blah, blah, blah. I like to get my words in before the day starts. That's key. Yeah. That is key. While nobody's really get the work out of the way, but while nobody else is really bugging me. Yep. So I like to get the work out of the way. And um, I do try to get my work on my novel or my essay or whatever that I'm working on at that moment, then move on to the stuff that I've got to do for the newsletter. Uh, take a break at around 11, wine tastings if they're around, mm -hmm. um, that kind of thing. Take sort of a break, do exercise which no longer the gym for me, but it's in my living room. What do you do? Um, I do a combination of, I don't, I don't know, I belong to glow.com. So okay. there's like power ballet. Okay. And another kind of, uh, I, you know, there's a lot of, you know, um, just extreme core work and, what what do they call it? I don't know. Just I I like to jump a lot. Okay. Oh, what is so uh, I do plyometrics? Like yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. I do, but I do a lot of Pilates, but also like kind of fat burning Pilates. Yeah. Or hit method yep. or something yep. like that. Mm -hmm. So, but I do short and hard. Right. So I do really like ten to fifteen minute intervals a few times a day. Nice, nice. I also live in a five floor walk up. Ah, that'll okay. get you 10,000 steps in easily. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, <clears throat> what do no, you I, most I, I stopped the day somehow. Yeah? Okay, whatever. <laughs> it's all right. It's enough. And then whatever. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, I used to teach productivity. Like, your one thing is getting a thousand words. And like, if you do that, You've had a successful day. Like you don't want to have these huge to do lists. You like I need to do this, and, right. and you can you can have won the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but sometimes I go on to for a few thousand. So, but yeah. at least a minimum yeah. eight to hundred to a thousand. Yeah. If you do that, you have a book in five months. See, and I know there's some aspiring writers out there listening. You got writers right. They don't tin bar. Well, I mean, if you have another job, just yeah, yeah. if you have another job, that's fine. But. Maybe you can't do a thousand. Maybe, maybe commit to 200, whatever, but like just start writing every day. And then, like you said, right. sometimes you're going to go. Right. And then, then you might wake up earlier. To I mean, get to honestly, so you go for a thousand or you get 1200 or whatever. And, you know, but if you have 400 good words, that's great. Yeah. That's great. 
Yeah, but if I have an assignment from another publication, then the whole thing goes out the window. Yeah. And then I'm just on my ass for 12 hours writing. <laughs> like, you know, and screaming, I can't get the, I can't get the lead. Where's the fucking lead? <laughs> it's frustrating. And it's like, you, you know, like, it's tough being a writer. Yeah, it's tough being a creative. And yeah. writing is, writing is so, I applaud writers. <clears throat> Thank you. Yeah. Um, so what are you most excited about for the future? Just released a new book. You're working on like, uh, another book. What, 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 what are you excited for? Like natural wine is coming into well, the whole new era. Natural wine has happened. So at oh. this point, I've gone into cynicism okay. instead of excitement. Um, I am excited that there seems that people were doing like getting lost in their natural wine making and a lot of people seem to be coming down and focusing and hopefully the best to natural wine is to come. But um, I am very much looking forward to getting back into the vineyards and getting back on the road because obviously two years has slowed down. Mm-hmm. Um, Ethel has you know, kind of clipped my wings a bit. So I'm really looking forward to, I'm starting to travel again very much so. So that's that's it. And when I get the idea for the next book, that's what I'll be most excited about. Yeah. But right now it's going to like work, make the novel work. Awesome. Well, Alice, thank you so much for coming here and coming in today. Uh, that actually, that 90 minutes kind of flew by. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing. Okay. Um, Thefiringline.com. So there is a free portion of that that I rarely update but you can tool around and see what what's there uh see whether you want to plunk down the money for it uh there's substack which feeds into the firing line website which is by the way a full website um that's basically the best way uh alice.firing on instagram alice firing on twitter Thank you, MJ, for pronouncing my name right. Oh, I, I didn't even go over that. I know. I, I think I went over that way early on, or someone told me. Somebody told you. Yeah, and I was Amazing. like, because I would have, I would have screwed it up. I know somebody had like somebody had gotten into an argument with somebody else. Says her name is Fearing, and she's like, she's my fucking friend. Her name is Fire. It's like, no, her name is Fearing. Anyway, um, but that's how you track me because it's you know that's tracking this. But whatever. That's what they do. That's what they do. <laughs> Please, <laughs> stop by, see what I'm doing. <laughs> yes, all my listeners out there. First of all, thank you very much. Don't forget to check out the show notes for each episode. That's where you will find info on the wine we drank, uh, links to cool things we discussed. We'll put Alice's uh, website and social handles in there so you can track her uh, and so much more. <laughs> Until the next time, cheers to the Mavericks. You check that off. Philosophers, check that off. Deep thinkers, check that off. And wine drinkers, it's your boy MJ. Peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list.